Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. And while the kids are getting out of here, I would invite you to think about a question of whether or not you've ever had a day that just refused to end. And I don't know what that might have looked like for you. Maybe it was a day that had a very early start, much earlier than normal, and it made that day drag on forever and ever. Maybe just to pick an example that may or may not be from personal experience, you had a day off from work and a coworker of yours said, do you want to go fishing tomorrow? And you said, sure. And they said, great, I'll pick you up at 3.30 in the morning. It tends to drag the day, the day, the day out pretty far. Maybe it was a day of traveling that led to you being jet-lagged and just waiting for the day to end. Maybe it was coming home from a long day of work and being rewarded by having to help your kids do their homework and chauffeur them around to all their activities. Maybe you got to the end of the day and it was those same kids refusing to go to sleep. Maybe it was a night where the kids were asleep, but you had so much running through your head that you just couldn't fall asleep. You may have maybe had one of those days where it felt like by the time your head hit the pillow that night, You have crammed a week's worth of activities into 24 hours. And I say all of that because if you can relate to a feeling like that, you can relate to the headspace that Jesus and his disciples are in as we pick up our series through the Gospel of Mark today at the beginning of chapter 5. We miss it a little bit as we are reading because we've started a new chapter. We ended chapter 4 last week. We're beginning chapter 5 today. But we're still within the same day or so of Jesus' life that we have been looking at over these past few weeks. This day began with the text we looked at two weeks ago, where Jesus is sitting on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, teaching this sermon that is largely a series of parables. And then after he gets done preaching, he says to his disciples, let's get in the boat, let's go to the other side of the lake. And so they do. While they're traveling across the lake that night, a storm blows up. Jesus is asleep in the boat, which we talked about last week. The disciples wake him up. He has to calm the storm. And they finish their journey across the lake. And we are still within that series of events. The text doesn't tell us for sure, but from what we can tell, it is probably still either the middle of that night or the beginning of the next day. But regardless, the disciples have had little to any sleep. It probably has all running together at this point for them. And this sleep-deprived group lands on the east side of the Sea of Galilee in what is unfamiliar territory to them. And they have more excitement waiting for them. And I understand we might not always pay attention to names of places when we read through the Bible because the names are hard to pronounce. It's on the other side of the world 2,000 years ago. Do I really need to know this geography? But this is one of those places in our scriptures where it is worth paying attention to the location of this passage because Jesus and his disciples, like I've already mentioned, they've traveled from the west side of the Sea of Galilee to the east side. And I think that's worth mentioning because that means they have moved from territory that is primarily Jewish to territory that is primarily Gentile. They've gone from a region where most of them grew up, where most people around them worship the same God that they do, eat the same food they do, observe the same holidays that they do, have the same general view of the world that they hold to a place where that's not the case where different gods are worshipped, where different holidays are observed, where different diets are maintained, where there are very different perspectives on how the world works. 
And if that were not culture shock enough, as they get off the water, we find Jesus once again encountered by an opponent. Last week, Jesus dealt with the opponent of nature and leaving the disciples wondering who he must be if he is more powerful than nature itself. And yet that was a question that was not answered. The disciples ask it at the end of Mark 4. They say, who then is this? If the wind and the waves obey him, they never get an answer to that question. Now we get an answer of sorts in this passage because Jesus will be proclaimed the son of the most high God. But it comes from an unlikely source. Yet even though it is an unlikely source, Jesus will demonstrate that this voice is correct. He's shown he has power over nature. Now he's going to show that he has power over the spiritual realm as well. And when we take those two stories together, we start to get a sense of who Jesus is. He has power over the things that we can see. He has power over the things that we cannot see. And if he has power over all those things, he must have power over us as well. So let's start reading our story, picking up Mark 5. I want to read the first five verses. It says, They, meaning Jesus and the disciples, went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. No matter how you feel about surprises, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume this is not the sort of greeting you would enjoy, to put it lightly. We have a man afflicted by demons, living like a wild animal. He's been cut off from all human contact and community. He is living among the tombs. These tombs would be caves or cave-like structures that were cut into hillsides, and there would be room within there for the remains of an entire family. And a place like that, a cave filled with dead people's bones, is the only sort of shelter and community this man has. We keep reading, we see that he is dangerous. There have been attempts to restrain him, but they've been unsuccessful. No one can rein him in, so there's nothing to do but let him roam out in the wilderness and tell the kids to stay away. He's not only a threat to others, but as we keep reading, he's also a threat to himself. He cries out in agony day and night. He cuts himself with stones. Such is the torment he faces constantly from the forces of evil inside him. It is an existence that is terrifying for those that are witnessing it and painful for the one who is experiencing it. And this is the welcome committee for Jesus and his disciples when their boat lands on the shore. They've had an eventful journey across the Sea of Galilee. My guess is they're hoping for some rest, or at least something a little more peaceful. And yet, in the next passage we're going to read, for as intimidating as this man might seem, he is no match for Jesus. Picking up in verse 6, it says, When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside, The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. 
He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. This man sees Jesus and the disciples from far away. He runs towards them. It almost runs towards them. It almost seems like he's trying a sneak attack. He begs for mercy. He asks not to be tortured. He uses the name of God to try to get Jesus before Jesus gets him. This is language of spiritual warfare in Jesus' day where you would try to subdue spiritual forces by calling other more powerful spiritual forces onto your side. These demons recognize who Jesus is, and therefore they call on what might possibly be the only force stronger than Jesus to try to stop Jesus from doing what they think is about to happen. They know that because Jesus has shown up, their destruction is on the way. They're just trying to push it off for as long as possible. Now, by all normal standards we might use to assess a situation, I would think we could qualify this interaction as stressful. I mean, Jesus and his disciples have been through an ordeal in these last 24 hours, and now instead of rest, they're greeted by a demon-possessed man yelling and running at them out of the cemetery. And just to add to the picture, Luke tells us in his version of, when he's giving his account of this story, that this man was, had not worn clothes for quite some time because of his condition either, just to get us, give us a little better sense of what is going on in this situation. And if you are Jesus, or if maybe you're just like me, in this interaction, you're maybe considering running in the other direction if you have not done so already. But Jesus tends to not react as we do. He was the one who slept during a storm in the passage that we looked at last week, and he's not bothered by this event either. He doesn't resort to fight or flight. He decides to make small talk, and he asks this man for his name. And that might not be how you or I would react, but maybe it should not surprise us that Jesus is again not thrown off by the dramatic and the difficult. He's perfectly in control, and he proceeds on his own course instead of being dictated by the conditions around him. And in response to Jesus' question, the man responds that his name is Legion, for there are many demons inside him. You might know a legion was a unit of the Roman army. We don't know for sure. It was composed of somewhere between five and 6,000 soldiers of various stripes. And so maybe a statement is being made here about just how many demons are in this man. But regardless of specific numbers, the main point seems to be that this man is being afflicted by an entire army of evil. No one else has been able to help him. And now Jesus is here. But as a part of freeing this man from his torment, Jesus does something that might be a little out of the ordinary. If you notice there, he, I don't have a better word for it, he negotiates with the demons. And he sends them into a herd of pigs. And the pigs promptly run down the hill into the sea and drown. And if you read that and wonder what in the world is going on, just know you are not alone. There's a lot that we could say, and some of it might be helpful, and some of it might just be speculation, but we can at least say, that this sort of instant destruction is what Satan and his minions love to do. As Jesus will say over in John, Satan only knows how to steal, kill, and destroy. He and his minions bring chaos, pain, and destruction wherever they are, however they can. They did it within this man by driving him into isolation, cutting himself with stones, and that same level of destructive force brings destruction to this herd of pigs, which in turn will bring economic devastation to this region. This is what our enemy does. 
He loves to introduce pain and suffering into God's good creation in any way that he can. So that's what that maybe tells us about Satan and the forces of evil, but maybe more importantly, it tells us that the power of Jesus is stronger. Jesus speaks, and his orders are followed. These unclean spirits are sent out of this man who had been forced to live among the unclean tombs into a herd of unclean pigs who immediately rushed to their destruction. And again, we might wonder why this would happen, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that all of this is done to bring healing to this man who was in torment. For all the damage that might be caused by this act, Jesus considers this one man more valuable than a herd of 2,000 pigs. And that's the goal of this story. Jesus has come to bring transformation for this man. He's come to bring healing and life where there has been death and destruction. And the last scene of this story gives us the fallout of this act for Jesus, for this man, and for the entire community around him. Picking up in verse 14, it says, Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Those responsible for tending the pigs run off to report what has happened. I don't know this for certain, but I think they want to make sure the true story gets out because 2,000 pigs running down a hill and drowning is going to be news that gets around pretty quickly. And I suppose if you go into the community and say, I don't know what happened, they just turned and ran down the hill and drowned, that's a level of an excuse about like my dog ate my homework, I think. And so they want to make sure that they get the right story out there. So they go into the community, they tell everyone what has happened, and the people that hear it want to make sure that this is accurate. They go out to investigate it. There's no way this can be true. And when they get out there, they find a scene that I think is more dramatic than they ever could have imagined. They've all heard of this demon-possessed man. They've all told their kids to avoid his neck of the woods. Maybe some of them have been involved with trying trying and failing to restrain him. Maybe they've been out there trying to have a funeral for someone in their family and they've been interrupted by this guy running around and cutting himself with stones. I don't know. They're all familiar with this man. And my guess is no matter where you grew up, there were places you were told to avoid. And that was the case with, with the tombs. There was no hope. He was too far gone. Just leave him be. Steer clear of the cemetery. Maybe one day, hopefully, this problem will be gone. But now, you have some pig farmers that have come into town saying their herd was wiped out and we don't really know what happened, but it had something to do with the crazy guy that lives in the cemetery. And they get there and they find this man dressed and in his right mind. And their immediate reaction at the end of verse 15 is fear. 
fear at this scene. And they get a little more of the gaps filled in from the witnesses telling them about what Jesus has done, about the pigs jumping in the lake, and it just makes them even more afraid. There is no celebration. There's no thanking God for this miracle. There's no party thrown to celebrate this man's return to normalcy. There is fear, and they beg Jesus to leave. Why would that be the case? Maybe they're just mad at what this is going to do to the economy. I mean, 2,000 pigs is nothing to sniff at, and when you have that much bacon wiped out, it's going to have some serious economic fallout, I would have to think. But if that's all this crowd is concerned about, maybe you would expect you know, them to ask Jesus how he was going to pay restitution or something like that. Now, it seems their fears go far beyond the grocery bill. They're afraid because they know how powerful this man is, and Jesus has just demonstrated that he is stronger They've all seen this man bound with chains and shackles time and time again. They've seen him break them and run off time and time again. He is filled with power from another place, power that is evil and destructive. And now someone has shown up and has defeated this power with merely his words. And they don't know who Jesus is, but if he's so powerful he can send the demons inside this man running with just his words, he must have power they want nothing to do with. And so they ask him, will you just please leave. And in a story that at least in my mind is filled with surprises, Jesus does what might be the most surprising thing of all, and he follows their command. Mark records no debate or deliberation. We're not told of Jesus saying, no, you don't understand, let me explain my side of the story. We're simply told that the people asked Jesus to leave, and the very next verse says, so he got in the boat. Jesus doesn't force his message on a crowd that is opposed to him. Whatever that might tell us, it at least says that when someone or some group decides they don't want to deal with who Jesus is and the message he's bringing into the world, he does not hang around. He's given us the free will to reject him if we so choose. And yet there's one person in this crowd who does not want to see Jesus leave, and that is the man who's been healed. If you notice, if you still have a Bible open in front of you, there at the end of verse 17, the people beg Jesus to leave. And then the very next verse in verse 18, Mark says that this man who's been healed begs Jesus to go with him. It's the same word used both times. The people are begging Jesus to get out of here. The man is begging Jesus to get to go with him all at the same time. And in a story full of surprises, Jesus has one more and he tells this man to go away. The same Jesus that we love to picture as welcoming of anyone and everyone, no matter who they are or what they've done, he tells this man, no, you are not allowed to come with me. So what do we make of that? I don't know if it's so much that Jesus doesn't want this man to follow him as it is where Jesus wants this man to follow him. Jesus does not let him come with him But instead, he sends him to where he can best proclaim Jesus' message. I don't know what's going through this man's head. Maybe he thinks that, you know, I've done, I've got a backstory here in this part of the world. I'm never going to be able to outrun my past. People are always going to remember my, my wild and crazy days of living in the cemetery. So I just need to get away. I just need to go with Jesus. I'll have new friends. We'll go to a new part of the world. No one will know who I am, and I can just start over. Maybe you've had a season like that. You've started a new job. You've gone off to college. You've moved. You've decided it's an opportunity to reinvent 
yourself. And as nice as that can seem at times, Jesus tells this man not to run from his past. And this isn't Jesus being rude or exclusive or anything like that, but it is that Jesus has a different task in mind for him. He tells him to go home and tell his people, tell his friends, his family, his neighbors about the work God has done for him and the mercy he has been shown. Instead of leaving with Jesus to start a new life, Jesus says, no, go resume the life you had before, but do it while proclaiming the power of of the God who has healed you. But you might know that this is not exactly in line with Jesus' normal procedure. At time and time again, when you read through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus will perform some miracle, some healing. He might even raise someone from the dead, and he will immediately say, don't tell anyone about what has happened. Now, typically, those are orders that are not followed. The people go and tell about what Jesus has done anyways. I suppose if Jesus has risen you from the dead, that's, that's something that's difficult to keep under wraps. But Jesus makes this attempt to keep, keep, keep his reputation from growing too quickly, but here he has a change in style, and the reason why is, again, seems to be because he's in different territory. When Jesus is in territory that's mainly Jewish, that's filled with Pharisees and people that don't like him, word getting around about miracles that he has done is going to get messages out there about who he is, it's going to raise up opponents against him, it's going to accelerate this timeline of what he's come to earth to do in a way that is not helpful with what he has come to earth to accomplish, and so he tells people not to let word get around about who he is and what he's doing. But here, in this region that is mainly Gentile, there's no religious leaders interfering with things. There's maybe a risk that people will instead think he's something that he's not, that he's a magician, a wonder worker, or something like that, and that story will get around that is not accurate, and that's not helpful to the work that he's come to do. And so he tells this man, go into the region, go tell anyone that will listen exactly who I am and exactly what I have done for you so that they might know who Jesus is and might know that he is the Son of God who has come to bring healing to all things through his kingdom. And after giving that commission, Jesus leaves. Now, on one level, you might, if you are reading this story for the first time and are tracking with Jesus moving into a new region and all those things, we might think, okay, this is a great opening act. Jesus has just come into this new territory. People are unfamiliar with him. He has this great dramatic episode where he heals this man who no one else has been able to help. Everyone's going to be abuzz about this, and then it will lead to bigger and better things, and his message will spread in a way that it never has before, and instead, Jesus just leaves. If his goal in crossing over to this side of the Sea of Galilee was to break into new territory, he did not make it very far. And this story ends, and we might think, well, that seems like a wasted trip across a big lake. And if it seems like the crowds have derailed his plan, we should keep reading. Because Jesus comes back to this area in Mark chapter 7. Isaac will be walking us through a portion of Mark 7 here in a couple weeks, and in Mark 7, verses 31 and 32, we are told that Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre, went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of the Decapolis, this region where he is in chapter 5. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. The last time Jesus was in this region, the people begged him to leave. Because he had power they did not understand and they wanted nothing to do with it. Now, 
A little bit later, he enters the same territory again, and he is met by people begging him to heal their friend. How did these people know that Jesus could heal the man they brought to him? Well, we're not told for sure, but it seems to be that perhaps someone has gone all throughout the Decapolis proclaiming all that God has done for him and the mercy that he has been shown through Jesus. Jesus' venture into this part of the world didn't exactly go as planned, but the message of Jesus continues to spread. Even if Jesus is only there for a few hours, even if he only performs one miracle, one man who was healed did what Jesus commanded him to do and proclaimed who Jesus was and what Jesus was capable of, and the message of his kingdom continued to go out. This story might seem odd. It might not seem like it fits with much of what we picture about Jesus. It might leave us scratching our heads. But this story contains my story, and it contains your story. It might not portray my, or your, my story or your story in a way that we like or prefer, but it is our story nonetheless. The story tells us where Jesus finds us, what he brings us, and how we respond. This story tells us that Jesus finds us where we are. Jesus goes to this man instead of waiting for him to find him, and he does the same for us. He did not remain in heaven waiting for us to find our way up to him. He has come to earth to meet us in our mess. And that mess might be on the shore of a lake like it is for this man here in Mark 5. That mess might be in a dark season of life where you have lost all hope. That might be in a time of grief where you have lost someone that you cared about. It might be a season where you are caught in the grips of sin and addiction. It might be in the midst of just a life that looks normal on the outside but feels hollow and empty on the inside. It might be in the midst of a mess where you realize you don't have all the answers that you thought you did. No matter where you are, whatever mess you are in... Jesus comes to you so that you can draw near to him. You can be as far gone as a naked guy living in a cemetery cutting yourself with stones, and it remains the same. Jesus finds you where you are. And when Jesus finds us where we are, he brings transformation. I don't know what this man expected when he ran to Jesus. I don't really know if he had the capability and the condition he was in to think about what might happen from this interaction with Jesus. But what I do know is that from this day forward in his life, there was a line in the sand. He could look back and very clearly see, this is what my life was like before I met Jesus, and then I met him and everything changed. And that doesn't mean that all his problems went away, we don't know. But something was different out after that day. Before he was isolated and broken, after this day he was a proclaimer of the kingdom of the one true God, the one who was breaking into this world with his kingdom to heal the broken and right all wrongs. And that same sort of transformation is available to every person who encounters Jesus. And that doesn't mean a switch flips and all your problems in life go away and everything's great from here on out. I'm sure this man had things to work through. He had explaining to do when he got home. He had baggage he had to unpack, but he had encountered Jesus and that was enough to change everything. And if you draw near to Jesus, his power will transform you. 
he will make you new. He will bring new life that sets you in a new direction as you grow into all God has created you to be. And that will still mean you live in a broken world, but it will mean there is a line in the sand where you can look back and say, life was different before I met Jesus, and now that I have, I have been transformed because of his power. And because Jesus brings us transformation, we are called to proclaim our experience of Christ's power. It would have been easier for this man to run away from his past. It would have been easy to get in the boat with Jesus and go back over to the other side of the lake and no one knows who he is. Jesus just picked up a new friend along the way. Jesus tells him instead to testify to the power of God and tells him that when he does that, incredible things will happen. So I don't know what your past looks like. I don't know what experiences in life you have gone through. I don't know how proud or ashamed you are of what is back there when you look back over your life. Maybe you feel like you need to conceal as much of that story as possible because if the people sitting around you right now knew about what you've done or where you've been or whatever it might be, you would be kicked out of this room. Maybe you feel like, yeah, I, I would like to tell other people about Jesus. I just don't think I'm the right messenger. I don't think it'll go well if I try to. And if that's you, I can understand your hesitations. But at the same time, I would challenge you to read this passage again and tell me where exactly in this story this man who was healed went to seminary. He had no training. He's not Jewish. He had no knowledge of the Old Testament. He didn't know the backstory of how God had been working for thousands of years through Abraham and his descendants to prepare the way to send Jesus into the world so all things could be made new. He knew none of that. All he knew was that he was tormented inside and no one could help him. And then he met Jesus and now he's whole. And he told that story time and time again in town after town until this whole region had heard it just as Jesus told him to do so that the next time Jesus showed up in the area the people knew he had power to heal now obviously I'm not against training and studying and preparing for ministry if I was against all of that I've made some weird life choices but that doesn't mean only those with the right training can proclaim what God has done in the world through Jesus if all you have is the story of how God has worked in your life, you have enough to proclaim Christ's power. I don't know your life experience, your current situation. I don't know how satisfied or dissatisfied with how life has gone or how it will look for you in the future. I don't know how qualified you feel to proclaim the message of Jesus. But I know that if you have experienced the power of God in your life, you have experienced everything that is necessary to be able to proclaim the power of God to the world around you. And I know that we live in a world that needs to hear those stories. The people in your home, the people in your break room, the people in your neighborhood, the people at your kids' ballgames and concerts, the people God has placed around you need to hear your experience of Christ's power. And so don't pass up those opportunities. If you have never walked with Jesus, he has come to find you so that you might have life. If you know Jesus, but you've not committed to him fully, he has come to bring his power to transform you completely. And if you have experienced that sort of transformation in your life, he is inviting you to proclaim your experience of his power. So follow the calling he puts before you and see where he leads. Let's pray. Father, we praise you because you are a God who is near to us, that you are a God who does not leave us in our mess, but comes to us in Jesus so that we might be transformed. Forgive us when we run from you. Forgive us for when we 
rebel against your calling over us, forgive us for when we think we can do it on our own. We ask that you would help us to lean into your transforming spirit, God, that we believe is dwelling within each of us who follow you and dwelling among us as your people. God, help us to be transformed day by day by your presence, to look more like Jesus, and to proclaim your power and your mercy wherever you lead us. Put people in front of in front of us in our path that need to hear it to draw us near to you so that we can't help but draw others near as well, God, so that you might be glorified through us here in this time and place. I ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.